Okay, welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants, wherever you are in the world. I'm really glad to be here with you. Uh, I'm excited to be here today with uh, Simon Bryce and Amanda Delaquilla, and we're going to talk about and something we've never talked about here on Pilates Elephants before, uh, which is franchising your Pilates business and growing from the journey of growing from uh, being a instructor to being a business owner, to being a multiple business owner, to being a franchisor, so someone who sells franchises to other people. So uh, welcome, Simon. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, so, yes, can you guys introduce yourself, Simon? Yes. Uh, my name's Simon Bryce. I uh, am the founder uh, with my sister, Amanda, at uh, Mission Possible Fitness, uh, Pilates and PT, and um, I've originally started down in the park, boot camp. I'm a personal trainer. Amanda's a Pilates instructor. Uh, that's how we formed our, our brand. And uh, we've gone on from there to, as we're talking about today, into uh, not just into our own studio, but franchising those studios out to other franchisees and growing forward. Right. And you're based in Sydney, Australia. Sydney, Yes. Amanda, hi again. Hi, hi again. Um, my name is Amanda Delaquilla. Um, I am Simon's younger sister. And as he said, we have been growing a um, business younger sister. That's right. Um, we have been growing a business over the past nine years, 10 years. Um, yeah. And uh, it's been a journey. So what I want to talk about today is really is that journey from, you know, starting the park to, or maybe I want to pick it up where you, where you had a studio and moved to, you know, growing to your present size of you have five locations, two of which are company owned, like as in like you guys own the, the studios. And then you have three franchises that um, are owned by other people, but you franchise the, the, the system to them. So I want to talk about that journey. Uh, and there are three sort of aspects of that that I really want to uh, tease out. And the first one is just the journey of growing your business from one studio to two studios. So this is like not really part of the franchise journey, like per se, but I think this is something I see a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people I talk to who have a studio, you know, when I ask them like, what's what's the future hold for you? Like the, the answer is like, well, studio number two, obviously, is like the natural progression of that. And that was my experience. I had a studio, I opened a second studio, uh, and after you know, looking back on that experience is like, oh, there's a lot of things I could have done better about opening a second studio, a lot of illusions I had <laughs> that turned out to be not true. Um, so yeah, I'd like to understand your journey there. And the second thing is that moving into franchising, um, which uh, is an incredibly, as I understand it, incredibly complex, involved process to set up. Um, and just a really interesting business idea that we've never discussed here on the podcast before. And the third thing is I'd like to discuss is your, like your personal growth, you know, both of you through that process from you know, starting out as what I, you know, lovingly refer to as a naive trainer, you know, like that's how I started out. Like I knew about Pilates, but I didn't know shit about business when I started my business. And I, I wonder if that was the same for you. And if so, like, how did you navigate that journey from like, okay, I know how to get someone strong, but I've got no clue about finances, marketing, sales, operations, you know, hiring, all of the rest of it. And how do you, how do you go from, you know, 
from that to owning one business, owning multiple businesses, franchising businesses, uh, you know, now leading a team of leaders who lead businesses, like that skill set growth and that mindset growth that you must have experienced over that journey. So those are the broadly the three things I'd like to talk about are the the journey from one to two, the journey from being uh, owning the business entirely to franchising it, and then your personal kind of growth and 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 uh, journey through through that. So uh, let's start out when you when you had your first studio. So and then you know when you expanded out to the second studio, or when you starting to think about expanding out to the second studio, because there's something I see a lot of people. Uh, like I said, you know, they have a studio, they think, oh, great, I want to open number two. But often actually what I see, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, because this was a mistake that I made, was is that I see people with their first studio is nowhere near optimized. Like they're probably at 60% capacity in their first studio. And they're like, I want to open a second one. And I'm, and I'm, I always say, Hey, look, I advise you to, to, to maximize a profit in your first studio before you open the second studio because all you're going to do is multiply your risk and expense and stress by four and reduce your profit. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So tell me about how you made that leap and was that your experience? Yeah, uh, it was a it was a large leap. Uh, it was definitely a lot of risk along the way. I, w- I would say that uh, you don't you don't need to have a one hundred percent positive. Uh, positive about every single answer in your head. It's a bit of an 80-20 rule. I think it's a bit of an entrepreneurial thing is that you don't need to have every single box ticks ticked before you move forward. And that includes the studio that currently in um, and the going forth, whatever your steps may be, whether it's just opening another studio or or um, actually franchising a system. So for us, we it was Amanda, myself and uh, Nicole, um, our other instructor that ended up becoming a partner, but it was just us three. We didn't have the size that we have in that same one studio that we do right now. That one studio has grown dramatically since we started the franchise process. So it shows that you don't don't have to be completely maxed out or uh, every little crinkle ironed out 100% in your first business. As long as you're, uh, I think it's a personality thing. If you feel that you're adaptable, uh, you can move fast and make be decisive on on what's going forward, and make just educated decisions financially. And um, you talk to enough people around you, have good network. I think they're big major factors rather than the fact of just having things ticked as such to move on forward. So that's fascinating that your first studio grew through the franchising process, and I want to ask you about that in a minute. Um, so. Tell me, yeah, you know, what would what was your tell me about your journey from one to two, and you know when did you start feeling like oh it's time we opened a second studio? Yeah, so when I we we had one studio, I was doing it really well. Uh, we had it open, and we'd moved from another place, and then we we'd opened our first studio that was essentially our own uh, a few years in, and we thought how do we how do we grow this bigger? Like what's the steps of how to grow our brand um, and our footprint bigger without us being in every studio? And you either two studios, okay, cool. You can get a manager, get some instructors. If someone's sick, you could probably jump in for them. 
it's not going to happen at three and four and five and six and every, you know, that only happens with two. <laughs> so that was the point where we just had to make a decision at that point saying, well, maybe franchising is worth the idea, right? but let's just look into it and see what's, what's involved, uh, which I found was quite a lot and <laughs> six months worth of pain, what I would call it. <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah, that's how we come about that decision. It's interesting to me that you – it seems from what you said that you, you it was a goal for you to step back from the day-to-day operations of the business. And I, Amanda, I know you still run sessions and Simon, I know you're still involved in, you know, in doing a lot – you know, like you work full-time on the business – but it was your goal to step back from, you know, presumably running PT sessions and et cetera. And so, you know, was that was that kind of part of your vision from the get-go? Because it seems to me that most people who start a Pilates or personal training business, their vision is to teach Pilates, right? Not to sit in some back office with an Excel spreadsheet, you know, looking at KPIs. That's not the, that's not the sexy bit. For most people, so yeah. So tell me about that 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 trajectory for you. Yeah, I don't think I ever have a natural office. By the way, <laughs> I'm not it's an a office reformer. In my, in my <laughs> office, yeah, it involves uh, reformer rooms and cafes and so on. So <laughs> uh, I like to be on the move, but yeah, it's there's big steps there. There's there's so much to think about because when you're in your own studio, there's You've got everything in front of you that you're in control of and how do you step out of that without – there's an emotional part to that too. You've got potentially long-term clients that you've been with three, four, ten years, however long, Uh, and and it's that how do I pull back from that and not hurt anyone's feelings and you have to look at the way you change your whole identity. It's an identity crisis essentially that you're changing. You're pulling away from being a personal trainer or a Pilates instructor or whatever your skill set is to now a business owner, uh, a franchisor, and um, you're leading and mentoring people underneath you. And I think as well there's um, with when we kind of went from two of us to three of us and we were all, I think, basically at capacity in the studio, there's a point where you do, you have a lot of conversations with people, um, you get a lot of like-minded um, clients, Um, And then you start drawing in instructors. And our first initial um, franchise was an internal sale. Um, And it was from someone who saw what we did and loved what we did and wanted to duplicate it um, with with us on board um, and our our assistance, our our guidance um, to duplicate it, um, what, 10 kilometres down the road, basically. Um, So... Yeah, there was a lot of um, kind of, and then we're, we're, you know, kind of drawing other instructors in and, and you're slowly kind of, there's a, that sort of period where, um, you know, you, you're starting to build and work on something else and where at that same time you're building up other instructors to, to you know, essentially, um, yeah, fill that so that there's not a void for those clients as well, um, that they don't miss you and, you know, that you can, you know, go in and out and, and do what you need to do. It's, it sounds like a lot of this has been uh, driven by just 
taking advantage of opportunities that presented themselves and then basically driven by necessity. So you had to remove yourselves from, from the business. So you had to train up other people to fill that. And that's sort of a natural part of building a, a team and becoming a leader. What were your aspirations, if any, when you started the studio? So you said you went from, you know, in the park, teaching PT in the park to opening a studio. You know, was there a point where you were like, yes, we're going to build this global, you know, empire and there'll be one on every street corner, like be like McDonald's or like, did you, did you have grand kind of aspirations at any point or did it just kind of grow organically as opportunities kind of popped up? Yeah, I think if you talk to any franchise, I've spoken to many fitness franchisors and I, had, I didn't even know what franchising was until I looked up. <laughs> I didn't know the difference between sales and marketing, um, to be honest, until um, I really started delving into these things. So all these things that you think back at the park and and and, and or people that are working within gyms and, and renting out space and things like that, you're only thinking ahead one or two steps. And I think until you've completed those one or two steps, then you've got the brain space to be able to think of another two or three steps or one at least. So, and then maybe prioritize them. And have your ambitions grown as your business has grown? Are you now thinking more steps ahead and think like, oh, we could, you know, we could Absolutely. make this better? <laughs> yeah, I don't. But the steps, the, ste- the steps that I think ahead now, I don't even know how I'll achieve. I'll just know I'll achieve them at some point. Yeah. There was a point, I think, in that initial phase where Simon was um, quite gung-ho and makes decisions and moves quite quickly, and I hold, I, I kind of, you know, pull back, pull him back a little bit and go, hang on a second, let's talk about da-da-da-da-da, and there was that kind of process. And now I just let him go. It's, it's you can't, um, I mean, initially it was a lot more, our steps were a lot more careful, um, but, yeah, we seem to have found the balance um, initially, between I guess between the two of us, where he was doing one side of the business and I was kind of concentrating on the other, and it just worked. And we thought, well, you know, this is this is working. It works. We can we can do this. We can duplicate this. And so, how do you divide the labour? And was that something that you you agreed on before you started, or did it just kind of naturally happen as you each kind of just did the work that was most you know natural to you? I think it was natural. I think it's. I'm a I'm a very people orientated um, person, so I was doing all of the marketing and clienting and converting clients, and um, that was my job. And it started off dropping leaflets in letterboxes and turned into Facebook, then turned into Instagram. Do you know what I mean? So that kind of progressed <laughs> from one stage to the next. Um, whereas Simon handled. Um, a lot of the financial side and sort of, you know, um, getting the pricing and, and um, you know, accounts and all that kind of thing. Um, and then it got to that point where there was, I guess, too much. We had to get a, you know, a bookkeeper. And so that's that first, you know, that first person that you bring in and then, you, you know, the, the people keep, you bring them in one at a time, you know. You mentioned before that your, you know, so I, mean, I, I guess I'm thinking about this growth, which seems to have been kind of pretty organic and even just the, the division of labor between the two of you seems to have been quite kind of organic and unforced and that you've taken advantage of opportunities that have popped up because a, you know, somebody, a client or an instructor within the business wanted to invest and then so you're like, okay, great, we better hire someone else and we better train them up and we better make a system to train them up. And then, so then all of a sudden you sort of creating this this business that has processes and systems in it. 
And I think back to something you said right at the start there, Simon, which was that the first studio grew through the franchising process. And I understand that the franchising process basically is the process of you documenting exactly how you build and run a successful business, you know, like this. So it's like, here's how you acquire a client. Here's how you service a client. Here's how you charge. Here's how you market. Here's how you do your financials. Here's how you, you know, all of those processes. And so was it the case that in the in the act of documenting those processes, you were like, oh crap, well, there's, you actually realized, oh, that's how we should be doing it. And then you actually got better at doing it by teaching other people, by documenting it. Definitely. And uh, I think uh, along the lines of being continually adaptable, that that builds that awareness, but there's no solid, you know, written in stone type scenario. It will change another 10 times in the next 10 years, uh, I'm sure. So it's about being adaptable and, yes, looking for those opportunities and modifying to suit. So it is important that, and, you know, how, how, that, how that first branch grew massively uh, within the time that um, the other franchises were opening and growing, it just shows how strong branding is and how important marketing and branding is. Um, it's not just a physical aspect of just multiply my marketing and multiply my sales and get a few extra instructors and off you go. There's power and weight real weight behind solid branding and marketing that will help every single person. If you think of any large brand in any industry, the more they get, the less they need to market because they're marketing themselves by purely being in front of people. You know, they're, they're physically being in front of people is, is the marketing. So therefore they have to spend uh, less as far as outsourcing is concerned. And um, if they don't want to, you know, they might have growth path, of course, and um, a certain way they want to have that trajectory with their company as a whole. But um, if you wanted to just grow at a, at a medium or slower pace to keep control of things, you could definitely pull back um, in, in what you invest into marketing as a whole. I want to come back to the, to the marketing uh, conversation in a minute, but what firstly I want to ask you, why did you – I mean, you kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, somebody wanted to buy in and start another place the same, but 10 Ks up the road. But why did you, how did you decide to franchise rather than say, just do a partnership agreement or some other you know thing? Like why, why franchising? Uh, and after I investigated it, I, I felt that uh, there wasn't another path that I would be able to multiply to five studios plus. That was the only way. Um, you could do partnerships with two or three people, plus the risk of partnerships in themselves. <laughs> it's like, uh, there's a high high chance that um, that can break up at some point. So, you know, you don't want – it's all right to have two studios and two, two partnerships, but 20 studios and 20 partnerships may not be uh, as happy landing. So <laughs> uh, that's where I investigated the franchise system, um, people that – uh, were able to create systems for you, basically the template, and they would uh, manage that. I, I didn't come from that a corporate uh, background, so myself, I, I had it in my head what was needed, and I thought what would look good, but I didn't know how to put that onto paper and be able to present that properly. So that's where you really have to dig in and, and find the right people that can do these things for you if you're not in that way inclined, uh, and. 
there's legal aspects. There's there's lots of legalities and um, large costs um, in setting these things up. So, like any s- small business, you need to be able to prepare to dip down in finances to be confident that you're going to come up. And that's a bigger dip than a, a small business opening up. <laughs> so, and of course, then following a franchise system is that you actually have to get franchisees. Then you've got to use the system that you just invested into. Right. And so they, they do say that, uh, you know, the spending has to precede the, the revenue. You know, you have to spend the money before you earn the money back. And uh, that I believe to a certain extent that is true. You know, obviously you have to spend the money on advertising before you get the client, you know. Um, however, it's not always true that when you spend money, you get it back. Um, no. So <laughs> that, well, dip, sure. that dip can be quite scary. And I've been there myself a number of times. And uh, sometimes it has, you know, a period of growth has followed the spend. And sometimes it's just been, no, we just spent the money and now we just have less money than we had before. And um, there was no growth. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like, they've been multiplying. Even through COVID, it's a great example. And I don't like to go on about COVID too much, but the we all went through it and we all had closures. And that's a, um, a big eye-opener when it comes to resilience in the business and being able to adapt in those times and do what you can do um, with the clients that you have and the equipment that you have and know and have the confidence that you will come through the other side. Uh, that's where many people will fall and that's why majority of small businesses do close within that first five-year period because they just can't – they don't know how to adapt continually and be resilient for lengthy, lengthy periods of time, well over five years. Yeah, when we first opened our, when our studio in Melbourne in March 2007, uh, we were very innovative. We were the first Pilates, first group reformer studio. We, we had apples and tea and nice music and smelled nice and – People were friendly when you walked in the door and um, we were like, people came in like, holy cow, this is really different. This is amazing. But then fast forward three or four years and it's like 30 or 50 Me Too brands open up and and now it was totally normal to have tea and nice music and group reformer and whatever. And so people walked in like, oh, it's just another group reformer studio. And so we, even though we had been incredibly innovative by kind of just sitting on our laurels going, oh, aren't we awesome because we're the only ones doing this? All of a sudden, we weren't the only ones doing this and we were just now we were just one of the crowd. Um, so you're exactly right. I think you have to continue to innovate uh, and uh, you, you have to kill your darlings, basically. Like, you, like you, you have to make your own offering obsolete by coming up with a better offering uh, that's more fitted to the market as, as uh, times change. I want to go back to what you said about marketing a moment ago, and and I want to broadly sort of generalize that out a bit more because I'm interested in your relationship, the two of you, in a business sense that, you know, you both started out in the park, okay, so you're both presumably running around witches' hats and doing push-ups and whatever, okay, because there's not a lot of like someone doesn't get to be CEO when your, your business is like teaching personal training sessions in the park, you know. I was just the boss. <laughs> I was in charge. <laughs> And but now you have actually, you know, you have a very serious business. You have five locations. And so, you know, Simon, your day, I'm, I'm guessing, looks a lot like meetings and KPIs and spreadsheets and looking at analytics and, and things like that. 
whereas Amanda, I know you still train a lot. You know, you you see clients. So, has how has your relationship kind of grown or changed, or you know, like as the business has grown, you know, has that sort of relationship, the business relationship between the two of you changed and evolved, Amanda? Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean. When we first started, we I can relate to what you were saying before because we were the first we you know we were the first studio in in our area that did Pilates and PT and um, you know we're we're one of many now and I think our relationship has always been the strength of the business. Um, we've always um, we've always I guess even even at first we've always had each other's backs and we've always um, had that. Um, we we discuss everything. We communicate well. We don't we don't fight. I think one time we had a disagreement over a timetable, and I cried. Like that's the extent of us. It was pretty upsetting. <laughs> that's the extent. That's not times. That was that was a breaker. <laughs> it's pretty emotional for me. Yeah. But that I cried. I cried later too. The, the schedule can be very emotional. Yeah, it's tough. Tough decision making. It was tough. <laughs> it was tough, but our communication has always been well. And we're, we are both, essentially, both Simon and I are very driven people and we're very um, driven for um, our own goals and our goals to grow. And any time that we have dipped down in the business, we've it's all been all hands on deck and we all, you know, we pull in and, um, we just work together. I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a great, we have a great relationship <clears throat> in that sense. How has your, how has your, Amanda, how has your role changed? Because you said before that you're responsible for the marketing and that's transitioned from letterbox drops. And I can resonate with that because we used to do that, um, to social media and Facebook and, and Instagram and, and uh, and yet you're you're still training in the studio and, and Simon's not. So has your role, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested in how, how has your role changed from studio number one to studio now five? You know, are you doing the marketing for all five studios or do you have a system where the studios do their own marketing? How, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, we do have a system in place now. And I guess it's changed in the way that um, I guess as Simon has been uh, moved um, – moved into those sort of franchising, um, you know, uh, dealing with the managers and doing all that kind of thing. My role has, to been, has been to stay on the ground um, and to cover across that and making sure everyone's happy. Like I do actually work in three, sometimes four of our studios um, and my presence in those studios is important to those owners, those managers and the other instructors as well, um, as well as, you know, making sure that you know, that the clients are happy and all the processes are kind of um, going ahead as we would, um, well, as we do, as we would like them to go ahead um, in studio. Um, and the marketing, essentially, now we do have a team, um, you know, that does, that gets across a lot of that for us, but we still do a lot of general posting and we like to do, um, you know, we, we like to do things in our community as well. You know, we've done we've done charity walks and we've done fundraisers and we've sponsored teams and we've done kids stuff and we've done, you know, we've stamped our name in the area um, to the best of our ability um, and we've been locals in the area the whole time. So there is a presence as well that 
I guess Simon and I need to have in the studio. So if Simon's, you know, not there, um, you know, I like to be present and, you know, I love, I love my job, all aspects of it. And do you see yourself as the business continues to grow? Because I'm, I'm taking from reading between the lines from things that you've said that, you know, you're not done yet, that you're, you're going to continue to, to grow the business. So, well, firstly, am I correct in that? You, you, you have further aspirations? Yeah. Uh, so as you grow, you know, how do you see your role changing, if at all? Like when you're at, say, like, I don't know what your aspirations are, but let's say when you're at 50 franchises, are you still going to be doing the same thing you're doing now or do you see that changing? Um, I guess I see it probably changing. I mean, my first aspiration was just to be a good Pilates instructor and then my second one was to be the best one in the Hills District and then my next one was to be even better than the best one and if there's more out there, I want to be, I want to know more in order to facilitate what I do for people. Um, so I always have a growing um hunger for knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. The more I know, the more I can facilitate and do my job better. And I love that. And, and as well now, you know, I, I guess with having the franchises now, I get to share that information. So me coming to you, you giving me knowledge, I passing it on to, you know, um, other instructors, you know, we're sharing that, that knowledge and that information, there's going to be that constant growth. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in five years or 10 years, but I know it's going to be awesome and exciting and I'll just change and adapt, I guess, as we, as we move along. So your role now is really uh, training or product, right? So you're, you're responsible for the quality of the service provision. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And Simon, how, tell me about your personal, like, I mean, your professional growth and also your, I'm interested in the mindset shift predominantly actually from PT in the park, you know, to studio owner, which, you know, when I opened a studio, I kind of imagined myself just like teaching Pilates, but it's like, it's my name on the door. It's like, I didn't imagine all of the other things that I would be doing as a business owner that actually as a business owner, I realized like, oh crap, I'm actually not spending the majority of my time teaching Pilates now. I'm, I'm having you know, performance conversations with staff. I'm talking to the marketing. I'm doing you know, all these other things. And then to multiple business owner and now you're leading a team of leaders and, you know, pr- doing a whole bunch of other stuff, which I'd like to understand a bit more about. But I'm interested in your mindset shift from and you said your aspirations have grown a lot over that time as well. Where in the in the back in the park days you were like, oh, let's come back next week. That's about as far as it went. And I was like, oh, maybe we could open a studio. It's like, oh, maybe we could franchise it. Now, you know, now what are your, you know, how have your ambitions, you know, expanded? Yeah. So tell me about that mindset growth and shift for you. Yeah, um, I've had mentors all along the way. I think it's important as you become higher up in your own business and you have people under you that ask you for advice and uh, and you want to develop them along their way is that as a business owner, it can be a lonely world. You know, you don't have anyone else above you that you can ask questions to, right? So you can join networks, you can ask other uh, businesses if you, you're friends with other people that own other fitness businesses, but it's very hard to get real depth on growth and have someone look at you 
uh, from a, a bird's eye view, I guess you call it. So there is a lot of uh, identification shift. You have to learn to be to compartmentalize. You know, there's time auditing which comes in with compartmentalization. If you are someone that uh, seems to uh, drag on things, you know, something goes wrong in your day. Do you think about it for two hours? Does it go on for two days? Does it drag everything else, you know, on with your week? Uh, or can you get over it in 10 minutes and maybe do all that later if it's a bigger thing and quickly shift gears and move on? So there's many of those things around mindset, which took me well over a year, to be honest, to be able to really dig deep and, and be aware and on a daily basis that if something did go wrong, if it's not going quite my way, hey, look, it'll be all right. Let's just do all that later. I've got to do these other three things first. Let's just do them to the best of my ability and then I'll deal with that and we can, um, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. You know, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing that you figured that out in just a year. I've, I've been working on it for a decade. Yeah, it's, um, I'll talk to you later about it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, so just as a frame of reference, like what, what's roughly, what revenue is your group at at the moment annually? Franchise. Yeah, like for the whole business, like what's the re- what's the revenue at the moment? Just so people have a frame of reference. I think revenue as, as a whole, we're looking at about six mil a year. So um, just getting started. Okay. And um, congratulations, by the way. That puts you in the top, you know, goodness knows what, half a percent of all, you know, small businesses. So that's that's certainly a, a very a, an achievement that you guys, you know, should justly be proud of and and – you know, it's it's an admirable thing that you have managed to do that. Um, uh, and you know, it's interesting because we're we're at about four million, four and a half million at the moment at Breathe Education. And it's interesting that you know, when I I've got a sort of gold record on the wall here for when I, the year I made my first million, I was like, oh my god, goodness, you know, it's like I've made a million dollars. That's amazing. But it's like life just goes on, you know. Like you still have to pull your pants on one leg at a time in the morning, and you know. <laughs> You still have to mow the grass, <laughs> uh, uh, and the kids still ask you, "What's for dinner? What's for dinner?" It's like, I don't know what's for dinner. You know, <laughs> like day, the days are still pretty normal. <laughs> um, so, but you do have different sorts of problems in your business. So, a six million dollar business is kind of like a sixty thousand dollar business uh, in that it's. You're just solving problems all the time. It's, if it's not one thing, it's the next thing. But I think the the this, the quality of the problems changes, or the, the size of you just got more zeros on the end of things, and you've got more people problems. I think in a larger organisation, there's a lot more communications issues, a lot more um, you know, meetings and accountability cadences and things that, that that have to be managed. Whereas when you're a two person shop in the park, it's like well, everyone knows what's happening because like you were both there the whole time anyway. So. How has the how how is your day? You know, what does a day look like in for someone who runs a six million dollar a year Pilates and personal training business? You know, what do you do all day? I look. I I see myself on level. I think one of the big ones for a start is that I don't see myself above anyone. I'll go into the studio and do a workout with them. I'll do a PT session for some whatever. Like it's um, I don't see myself as their boss. I don't even like anyone using the word boss. It's just annoying. I'm just part of the team. Um, and we all help each other out. And that's 
a big one because this is where Amanda's done really, really well is be able to implement like very, very strong culture and be very good with that, picking people from the start, whoever they may be, whether an instructor, PT, a, a salesperson, um, cleaner, whatever, anyone that's part of your business, they've, they're really, it's really important that they're part of your culture. They're involved in, you have a lunch out together, they're all involved. You know, you're doing a team education day internally, you get everyone involved and it's all about just trying to do things together and picking people that are in a similar mindset to yourself. So uh, if people are more selfish, um, you'll find they're the ones that don't come to all those things and they'll soon fall off the side, right? And the strong ones will remain. So uh, I think from the get-go, culture is the absolute number one, which you're asking about my day. That's, that is a big part of me just having that discussion with Amanda. That's what Amanda and I would speak about. What's happening at this studio? What's happening in that studio? How are they going? Is there any issues? What we would like to implement next month? Um, we would get all the studios together every single month and ask what would they like to implement? What would they see going forth? And we'd, I, I, that would be my job then to make sure I look at who needs to be involved in implementing those tasks and how we can get that within that 30-day period so it's done by the next time we meet in the next 30 days. So my day is all about communicating with the other teams, um, sales staff, how they're going, KPIs, managers, um, anyone being away, studios covering other studios with instructors if need be. Uh, all of those communication lines are open. Amanda, what do you – I want to come back to that in a minute, uh, Simon, but Amanda, how do you define a strong culture and how do you filter for that during the hiring process? And and how do you hold people accountable to it after they've – you know, once they're working with you? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, when, we are, when, we are hiring, when we are hiring people, we are definitely looking for – People that are like that are like-minded to us, like Simon said, um, and, and I'm very aware when I'm having a conversation with someone um, where what they're interested in. Are they interested in um, being an instructor um, to to help people, or um, are they after the dollar per hour? Where's their mind? Where are they at in their family? Can they, you know, can they be on board for six hours a day or can they only do two hours once a week? Um, and I think that what happens in that, in that process is when people, you know, I mean, not everyone's going to stay. You hire people, they're not always going to stay. Some will stay for a short time, some will stay for a long time and, and people can move on and that's okay. Um, and they all leave a, leave a stamp, I guess, on the studio, but uh, the... I do find that we, we do tend to keep the good ones and attract the good ones. And with the other ones that perhaps their values align differently with ours, they tend to uh, pitter out a little bit um, or they stay for a while or they start working at other lots of other studios and, and that sort of process. don't need to do a lot. That kind of tends to happen naturally. Um, but I, I do find as well. But even with even with new instructors, sometimes you don't you don't know, um, and 
you know, and they don't know either because they're just learning and that's okay too. So giving that communication and support, a lot of the time that communication, the weekly meetings, the monthly meetings, the team meets, the lunches, the coffees, the check-ins, all of those things are all about communicating and putting fires out before they get started. And that's really important um, because if we're across everything and we know kind of where everyone's at and what's going on, um, to the best of our ability, at least people can, you know, feel free to, um, instructors can come to me, they can come to their manager, you know, things can get discussed, you know, if people need time off, it's, it's, it's easy because we kind of know where everyone's at. And as, as you grow, I have found the same thing that the, the biggest part of the, the, or the, the, uh, communication becomes a bigger and bigger part of the job uh, because when you have a team of, we have 28 now of people around the world, uh, you guys must have more than that. I'm guessing with five locations, you must have like 60 or plus people working for you, right? Yeah. Um, so it becomes really difficult to implement changes or even hold people accountable to things because a lot of those people probably have never met each other or work different shifts and aren't on at the same time. And, and how do you roll out these changes? And it's really easy for the left hand to, to be, to, to, to do something without the right hand knowing about it or vice versa. And so it becomes a bigger, there becomes a, like basically an organizational tax of you have to have meetings and accountability cadences and coffees and team meetings and, you know, whole club meetings and, and whatever, just so everyone knows what's going on and everyone stays on the same page. And we see that, I think, as often a like a negative thing about like, oh, lots of meetings and blah, blah, But it's actually, that's that's what makes an organisation work is that communication and, and people you know, getting together and making decisions. And um, so I'm interested, uh, Simon, to go back to, you know, what you were saying before about, you know, your day is basically communicating with people and, you know, basically filtering up the communication, like what's going on on the ground from Amanda and from the from the studio owners, and then also filtering outwards. It's like, okay, here's the new initiative we're going to do, or here's how we've got to improve our performance or whatever. So what do you see as the most important skills or mental frameworks to develop to grow your business? Because, I mean, you don't spend much time teaching people how to do push-ups these days, right? No, I, do. I still touch base on a couple of sessions early morning. So I, I, I'm always free by, uh, you know, 8, 8 or 9 a.m., even if I do do that. So I've got a full day. I don't mind staying on the ground a little bit and touching base with, um, you know, clients I've had for many, many years from the get-go. So, and um, that might be a weakness of mine, but I, I find it also keeps me intact uh, and keeps me fit. <laughs> I actually, I think it's a strength. Um, I've done both in my businesses when I ran a studio, uh, I was, you know, I started out teaching 20 sessions a week and I was just like nose to the grindstone teaching. And at one point, eventually I transitioned to where I wasn't teaching any sessions. And this is when we we're doing like $2 million a year in one one studio. And, you know, we had like 1,500 client attendances a, attendances a week, 42 staff. And I was like, oh, Mr. Big Shot, I'm the CEO. I, I don't, you know, I don't dirty my hands with, you know, dealing with dealing with the clients and and I just got now that wasn't exactly what I thought but it, you know I I became basically aloof and I think I got too big for my boots and I really lost touch with what was happening in the studio in the in the on the reformers and 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 stuff started happening that wasn't 
the way I wanted it to happen, but I didn't know because I wasn't there and I wasn't with the clients and I wasn't, you know, going, oh crap, this reformer carriage is cracked, you know, um, that needs fixing, <laughs> you know, and that's just the stuff that you only notice when you're using the equipment and you're, you're using the change rooms and you're talking to the clients and they're going, yeah, I couldn't find a parking spot this morning because so-and-so parked their trolley there or whatever, you know, and so, yeah, so I think it's very valuable and now, even in my business now, I teach, I, I do a, a lecture or two a week and I'm very active in Slack with our students. I think that's crucial for a leader of a business of any size to walk the halls, you know, figuratively and be in touch with what's going on. Otherwise, I think you're making decisions in an ivory tower and, you, and you're going to get it wrong more often than you're going to get it right. So you know, anyway, I support what you're doing. I think you're doing the right thing. Um, but back to the question of, yeah, what do you see as the most important skills or mental frameworks to grow your business, you know, to transition from trainer to business owner to, you know, scaling a business. Yeah. I think from trainer to business owner, uh, I can see the massive step involved where you, you know, you, you, you find a place you can vision, your, you see yourself in this place uh, with it all fitted out and Pilates gear everywhere. And it's looking amazing. Uh, but I think at least having uh good knowledge in, in sales and marketing for number one. Um, and that's, I haven't done any, uh, you know, certified courses at all. It was me just looking online, seeing what other people are doing. Um, I joined a mentor group, which they educated in part that in, in regards to the fitness industry anyway. And it's all about getting your foot, get, getting active, right? Getting your foot in the door, getting active. So, you know, you, you can only get better with something that you practice yourself. Um, so you have to get in and just do it. Like, like I said at the start, when, when you, when you go to a, you know, that big step, whether it's your first studio or multiple from one studio to multiple, there's always going to be an element, um, of 20 or 30% that you really just don't know as much as you think you might know it. It's, it's just, if, yeah, you need to be adaptable and, and be aware that, it's guaranteed that things will change. <laughs> can say that. It's, it's just not um, realistic to say that what you put on paper before something starts is going to be exactly how it's going to roll out because it's just not. It's. I think you're setting yourself up for failure if that's the way you uh, think things are going to proceed. <laughs> if you want to make God laugh, show me a business plan. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of like if you don't if you. Um, you know, fail to plan, you you plan to fail. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of that, but I think it's only 80% of that. <laughs> I agree. I think it's important to have a plan, but I think it's important to understand that your plan is probably not what's going to happen. <laughs> so you've, you've got a starting point from which to improvise, from which to improvise. So, all right. So sales and marketing, I 100% agree. I think they're foundational skills. I think they're, they're, I think probably the most foundational skills for any business because every business is in the business of selling something to someone. And if you don't sell your products, like that's the end of the business. So yes, I agree. Sales and marketing. Uh, and I also agree with the adaptability piece that it's interesting that you said that as a skill or a mindset. I'm not sure, but I agree. And maybe it's because I don't, you know, haven't cracked the code of, of business yet and it all just seems chaos and random chance to me, but I really feel like building a business is like jumping off a cliff and assembling an airplane on the way down. And I think it it is much better to be agile and able to change course quickly 
and course correct quickly, it's much better to do that than to be really, really good at planning. Um, although I, I agree with you that some degree of planning is important, um, but uh, circumstances change so quickly, market forces change so quickly, and often you just get it wrong. But nothing changed, you were just wrong. <laughs> and you thought, oh, we'll do this and it'll work. And then, oh, no, that didn't work. Oh, well. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to be able to change. So sales and marketing and getting comfortable with change. Were you always like that? Were you both? Now, Amanda, you said you were, you're the force of like, oh, let's think, let's, let's take a deep breath and count to 10 and, and think this through before. Do some breath work, everybody. Let's meditate on it for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you said, Amanda, that that has, you have kind of stepped away from that role as the business has grown. Is that because you are more comfortable with change now or because you've realized, okay, no, Simon's right more often than he's wrong or what? why is that? Don't let him know. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Don't really. say it out loud. Um, I think <laughs> I think that then That's untrue, by the way. <laughs> I think that I think that I've just learned um and and as in individually and, and in our partnership as well, that we've fallen flat on our face a couple of times and we've always come come up and out of it and and Sometimes you've just got to keep going and keep keep doing keep doing what you're doing. And when you know, like when you know and you trust and you believe in yourself as a brand, as a as an instructor, um, as a company, which I have a hundred percent faith in um, our business and our brand, um, you can't fail when you have that mindset. So it doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. Um, but yes, I guess my um, holding holding him back a touch and and let's plan and let's do this um has kind of you know it's kind of loosened a little bit because i've seen over our experience that when we have fallen we fall fast and we get back up that's it you fall fast you get back up you just and you just go again and and you may have to change and it may have to look different and that's okay um that is um you know our you know, that's that's what a business should be doing anyway. We don't want it to stay the same. So that that growth is inevitable, and you, if you're embracing it, it's not as stressful as <laughs> trying to uh, control it. Do you think going back to something that Simon said before, and just puts me in mind of what you just said, that the ability to kind of face those setbacks or you know minor disasters or major disasters with equanimity, like you said before, someone's like, okay, there's this terrible emergency and you, and you said like, oh, well, I've got these other three things to do, so I'm going to focus on those first and then I'm going to get to this when, when I'm ready. Do you think, Amanda, that the ability to face those kind of disasters with equanimity and sort of not get emotionally attached to the outcome is a crucial part of that ability to be agile and to change, like because you're not attached to, it's like, oh, well, we fucked up. You know that didn't work. Okay, let's not let's not make the same mistake again, and let's let's move on. Do you think that's an important? I think that all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a whole lot of personal growth in there, you know, because I think that if you're, you know, if you're if you're sitting in judgment of of others, you're you're sitting in judgment of yourself. So there's like when you're not sitting in judgment, constant judgment of yourself, you do sort of, I guess, you know, um, 
loosen up around those areas and accept that, yeah, we do, we are going to make mistakes. And I'm pretty sure the first long-term client that, that, that left cause she moved, I was pretty upset. I was personally offended and it's, it's, um, you know, you learn to. She did move to an state. <laughs> Just to leave you guys. That's amazing. Yeah. That, that was going overboard. <laughs> Yeah. I think she's trying to get away from me. Point. I think she was trying to get away from me. But it's <laughs> um, but I, I I think that it's it's you have these experiences and you 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 grow off every off everything and you know there's always I mean the thing I love about studios and the thing I love about being around more people and more instructors is I am always learning. Every conversation, there is not a day. I think I did um, maybe six hours of, of work this morning. And I learned so much in six hours and I talked about a million different things with people and they moved and we laughed and, and, and they, you know, were in pain for some of it and it was fantastic and we had a good time. And I, I, I love that, that I, that, that we're always, you know, we're always learning, um, you know, in our business and, and that's, that's amazing. I want to go back to the learning piece in a minute. I want to ask about mentoring and where you go for mentoring um, because one of the things I've found as my business has grown is it's got harder and harder to find mentors who are ahead of me in the same business and who I respect and, and want to learn from, especially within Australia. Like I've had to find people outside of Australia. So I'm interested to understand your, you know, how you find a mentor and, and what you look for there. But before we go there, I want to uh, ask your indulgence to, to in, in like, tell me about a time that you guys fell flat on your face and, and, I mean, for me, there's been so many, like I think in the last two years, I've spent over a million dollars trying to break into the American market and probably about 950,000 of that has been wasted. Well, when I say wasted, I mean like hasn't returned a dollar, you know, it's like just money that was in my bank account that is no longer in my bank account. <laughs> That's a bit of a... <laughs> Um, and, you know, over that time, it's def- there's definitely been things that we've learned from that, you know, like we've learned, you know, 5,000 things that don't work about how to break into the American market. Um, and I think now we have learned one way that does work because actually now we're succeeding and more of it, more than half our clients are coming from America now, which is great. So, you know, in one respect, that's like money well spent. And that was just the cost of, of learning about that market. But during that time of, of losing that money, like I had to let people go. I had to downsize the business. I had to, you know, made it, we made a negative profit, which is another way of saying we made a loss last year of like $3,000, which is not a lot, but it's like, you know we could have made $500,000 profit if we hadn't have wasted all that money on, on Facebook ads or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so there's been plenty of opportunities for me to to not achieve my goals. So last year I said, we're going to make $10 million. We're going to break into the American market. We didn't, and we didn't. Um, and this year I'm saying the same thing, and it looks like we're going to succeed this year because we're well on, well on track for it. So that was like one short example of somewhere that I've fallen on my face, and it, I said it very quickly and – but it was very painful. We had to let people go. You know, uh, it, there was a lot of you know, heartache involved in in that and a lot of fear and anxiety from the people remaining in the company about like, will I, will I be next? And, you know, so there was some really tough times um, around that, you know, mistake or learning curve or fuck up, you know, whatever you want to call it. So now I've gone first and, uh, you know, you guys tell me about a time that you fucked up. <laughs> I've had heaps of them. Um, <laughs> it's uh, my favourite saying about uh, is um, fail forward fast, and uh, 
you know, you've only got so many units in your day. If you've got a hundred units in your day, it's uh, like how much time will I spend? Uh, it's with the compartmentalization thing. How much time will I spend doing something forward? And how many of those units will I, if I use those 20 units thinking about something else and someone else and what's this person doing over here, it's not really getting me anywhere. So using that time, but failing has become the biggest way to move forward. And it's not just a saying that, you know, sort of sounds cool or, you know, potentially true, but it, it the more you fail, the more you realize that's, that is the way forward. You can't just wing it and be 100% uh, successful in every single move that you make. And that's, that's the whole part of being adaptable. You know, the bit, one of the biggest leverage points of our whole story was before we even got into our studio, uh, when we left the park and we were, we were sort of in the park at the same time, but we went into a trampoline arena, we hired a mezzanine floor, a 200 square meter mezzanine floor for, for four years. Um, this is while we were still doing boot camp, and, uh, we did quite well there. We were doing Matt Pilates at that time. So Amanda was Matt Pilates. I was doing PTs. We started a, a trampoline fitness company and uh, started doing adult trampoline fitness because there was trampolines um, in this big kids center. Uh, but that was vandalized heavily. We just got there one day and the place was closed. Um, someone had slashed all the trampolines. They threw in buckets of paint over all the floors, including our own. Uh, we couldn't even get into the place to get our own equipment out. And there was a class full of people with Amanda standing out the front going, what do we do now? So that was a major, major turning point for us. That was the point where we went, we could have quit at that point quite easily. It quite easily, we could have gone, oh, let's just go, this is too hard. This is just going to, we must just go get a job. Like, just, so we went from, you know, we went to Amanda's backyard. We quickly adapted once again. We said, Amanda lives the closest to the studio. We know boot camp. Let's get these guys that are in the studio to do boot camp and Matt Pilates from Amanda's backyard that afternoon while mowing lawns and making it all pretty and um, emptying out a garage. And, you know, we, we it's being decisive and adaptable extremely fast in the most worst scenarios, which for us at that point was a very, very hard scenario. We both had young kids as well. You know, we've got all families and everything to think of at the same time, home loans, all that stuff was there. So, uh, and within that time, why we, we changed and, you know, the, the majority of those clients supported us and came still, we still had to think we had an extremely cheap rental deal at that place because we we're renting a small floor space and we we're only paying a thousand dollars a month. It was, it was nothing. And we went from that to going, okay, we have to rent somewhere that's close to the same space we're in, uh, because of the center for the clients, but everywhere is like five times the price literally so we just had to we found a place it was it was five thousand a month we had three months free rent and we knew we had to get to at least from the 20 members that we had remaining after some that left we had to get to at least 80 members just to come close to being um, square and that was with mats in one room and pt gear and boxing gear that we had to go and rebuy uh, in another room, there was no hard equipment. There was no squat racks or reformers or any hard equipment whatsoever. So that was a major, major turning point for our business and our mindsets and how resilient you can be at that point. You can either turn around and go back to good old jobs. Um, the thing that you left <laughs> to try and progress, or you can step up and move forward. So 
that was a um a really it makes me look emotional thinking about it uh, this was uh and and isn't it interesting that that was really that was probably one of the biggest times we've we've dug deep to to a point of complete uh broke so personally broke um no members broke like everything broke and completely in a hole as far as going forward so that was um that was a massive massive failure at that point only but it's also been our biggest success it has and isn't it interesting that and and I feel you because I've I've been there like we didn't have our trampoline slashed but I've been at that point where it's like do I just quit now and um move out of my house because I'm going to be evicted from my mortgage or do I pull some kind of rabbit out of the hat and <laughs> and figure out how to make this work and and I've been there multiple times and what I've got from my experience, it sounds like you guys have got the same thing, is once you do that a couple of times, you're like, I can do anything. You know, this there's no way this business can break me. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna succeed no matter what. And going into this most recent round that I just described of where we've let people off, because we've we've had to let people go like three or four times in the history of this company. And what I know now is and what I knew going into this last round of where we had to let people go is like, we are never going to fail as a company. Like we will do what I will do, whatever is required to, to thrive and survive in this business. Like there is nothing that I won't do. I mean, short of murdering someone or whatever, but I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I know. Well, let's talk about it. You know? um, so there, there is nothing like I will, there is no hard conversation that I won't have there is no cost that I won't cut. There is no, you know, thing that I won't try. There is no, you know, late night that I won't work in order to make this work, you know. And I can see, you know, from both of you that you have the exact same, you know, determination and mindset. And I think that comes from going through those experiences, which at the time are incredibly unpleasant. But, you know, funnily enough, when you look back, for me anyway, it's like I'm kind of proud and feel good about what I did, even though at the time it was shit, you know, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, the bigger the failure, the bigger the failure, usually the bigger success that you shoot out the other side. Um, as long as you can be resilient and, and know that what you know can push you forward, if you can just get over that hump, uh, you will multiply tenfold. Mm. Well, that's. I think that's admirable what you guys did. Uh, I, um, I think that... Uh, that shows me that you are incredibly resilient, resourceful, and flexible thinkers, and uh, that you just do whatever needs to be done. Like that's that's awesome. I, the round of applause, you know, well done. Um, so I want to go back to the mentoring question because Amanda, before you mentioned, you know, education is a big thing, and I know you were talking in the context of learning from your clients and etc. But earlier, Simon, you mentioned mentors, and I think for me, mentors have been incredibly important. Uh, I've found that my personal experience has been as I've built my business. Cause like I said, when I started a business, I did, I didn't know thing number one about business. I didn't even know what marketing was or sales. Like you said, I, I knew nothing and I didn't even know that I didn't know anything. You know, I just thought, how hard could it be? Anyone can do it, you know? And so I, <laughs> and, and so as I've grown as a, as a business owner and learned lots of hard lessons by doing it wrong and then learning, oh yeah, I should have paid that tax bill on time or whatever, you know, uh, and then oh, but maybe I should get an accountant so I know what tax bills I've got, you know, to, to pay, et cetera. So I've learned those hard lessons and hopefully won't have to learn the same lesson again twice. But as you grow, what, what I've found is 
that you get really good, like, so the skills you need to run a $1 million a year business are not the skills you run a PT sessions in the park, right? You have to learn these, all these other skills. So you learn these great skills and you're like, great, I've got this $1 million business. Now it's grown to $2 million. It's like, oh, great. Now I need different skills because a $2 million business has a bigger team and you need to be able to run meetings and hire people and do leadership and, you know, hold people accountable. And all of a sudden, so all of a sudden you've got this skill set of running a $1 million business, but you're running a $2 million business, <laughs> you know, and then your skill set catches up. But by that time, your business is at $4 million. And it's like, oh, my skill set's still not, still not where it needs to be. And so it's been really a challenge for me to find a mentor because when I'm, you know, when I'm, I want somebody that's been there, done that with what I'm doing. And it's like, well, when I look around Australia, there is no other Pilates business that's doing what we're doing and is ahead of where we are. So I have to look overseas. And even there, it's like, oh, well, there's no one. I mean, no, none of our competitors are going to mentor me. So I have to look into other industries. Like I go and find people who are in sales or marketing in the online space or, or whatever. So I'm interested in where you go to find them. So two questions. First, where do you go to find a mentor? What do you, what do you look for in a mentor? That's kind of one question. And the other question is, has it got more lonely as you've, as you've grown? Because what I've found is, you know, I've, I basically can't discuss business with most people in my acquaintance now because like their idea of business is what my idea of business was 15 years ago, which is like you start a corner shop and, or, or whatever, you know, Whereas I'm now thinking with this lots more zeros on the end and, you know, I'm thinking marketing and strategy and people and all of that. And it's like, all of that is foreign to most of the people in my, my family, et cetera. So two questions, where do you go for a mentor and what do you look for in a mentor? And has it got more lonely as you've, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I, like socials is always a good avenue, right? So I don't think there's any one mentor that suits any one person. I also don't think that one mentor will be good for you at one level. As you grow, you will need other mentors that are at much, much higher experiences and, and been to other levels. So, And it doesn't have to be industry related because all businesses come across similar blanket problems. Uh, it doesn't matter what industry or what size business you're talking about. There's still still our teams, still our culture, still our marketing, sales, all that. They're all still the same problems, whether you've got a $50 million business or a half a million dollar business. It's just a bit more scaled outwards, that's all. But I think uh, it's important just not to um, micromanage. Um, if you feel that you have to micromanage anyone, you'll never be able to break that glass ceiling because you don't know how to let go. You don't know how to trust anyone. And that all comes back to that culture start at the very, very start, you know, picking people. So... When you're finding your own mentor, it's um, it's it's searching through Audible. Listen to your favorite books. You know, listen to uh, read your favorite books if you like reading. Like listen to um, podcasts and hear what other people have got to say. And the ones that will work best for you are the ones that will align. They're not trying to sell you a package for six months to get you on this like, bigger and better small business course, which is super common. I've been to miles and miles of them, and they all pretty much the same, but I only related to one person, um, which is my mentor now. Why? Because him and I, we both have the same basic values around family and culture and business and the way we our work ethic is um, and the way we have a work-life balance all aligned. And that'll be different for every single person. So it's, they will have to, you know, people listening would have to trial and error. You know, they will talk to these mentors and 
Um, they may spend 10 grand or 15 grand per mentor just to kick off a four week or 10 week program and not like them and then have to do that again and again and again. But um, I think if you can listen to a few and then if you're happy with what they're, it resonates, resonates in what they're saying over several months, three or four, five, six months, and uh, it's still in alignment with your values, then that would more than likely be the right sort of person for you. It's kind of like buying something on Amazon where you're not quite sure if it's going to fit and then you just have to take your chance. If it doesn't fit, oh, well, you just buy a different one and uh, see if they fit. That's it. It's about to fail forward fast, right? It's still fail forward fast. You're still going to fail with a mentor and find another one. Right. And it sounds like a lot when you say, oh, five or $10,000, and that's the that's the vicinity that I'm spending as well. But there are some things like the, the first serious mentor that I had that I paid, I think, $5,000 a month for like one hour of mentoring a month. And this was US dollars too. Um, the second month that we were together, he convinced me to put my prices up by 80%. And that made me half a million dollars in the next 12 months, which was like, all right, well, if he gave me zero additional advice for the next 12 months, he already paid for all of his sessions times five, you know, (laughs) by that one piece of advice. So you don't have to have a very high hit rate (laughs) to to make your money back. (laughs) No. I think it comes down to um, other layers that you look for, right? Like finances is one thing, but um, I think if anyone is in any career solely for money, that will quickly that will burn out eventually at some point, whether it's two years, five years down the track, whatever it may be. There'll be a point where, you know, like what you said earlier, what happens in your day doesn't change. Whether you've got a million dollars in your bank account or two dollars, what's in your day and what your activities and who you talk to and who you relate with, that's all still going to happen, whether you've got the money in a bank account or not. So, you know, all those other layers are going to be much more important um, above the initial success rate financially. So I think that's good to look for in a mentor as you go forth. And you may have two mentors, that's okay. Right. And what you said there, like uh, money solves money problems. You know, like I've, I've, I've been poor and I've been rich and I much prefer being rich, but um uh, doesn't mean you don't have any problems. You know, now when I go to the supermarket, I enjoy not worrying if my card's going to decline. You know, I enjoy filling up the car with gas without ever looking at the price. You know, but it's like I still have to get on with my teenage daughter and I still have to wash the dishes. You know, <laughs> I still have to put my pants on one leg at a time in the mornings. <laughs> uh, so. You know, so many aspects of life, you know, are just the same. You know, I still buy the same brand of T-shirt. Um, so, <laughs> um, so just that I want to, Amanda, there's something I want to ask you in, in a moment about uh, letting go of perfection because that's something you mentioned before about the sort of the delegating and growing. But before we go there, Simon, I just want to go back to that second question I asked you when uh, about the piggybacked on the mentor, which is, has it got more lonely for you? I guess I want to ask this to both of you. Has it got more lonely for you as you as you've grown as a business owner? Have you found that you've got less in common with people, or they're just like you know when I you know when my mum asked me how my business is, it's like I don't tell her because she doesn't really want to know, you know, like the new accountability metrics that we've you know introduced. It's like she doesn't care, you know. Yeah, yeah. My cost my cost per lead's gone up this yeah. month. We don't tell I, we don't tell our mum either. She <laughs> oh, it's good. It's busy, is it? That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's nice, darling. Yeah. 
sounds nice. <laughs> as long as you make time to call me during the week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. It's uh, I'd, I'd say it's um, I would say it's not as lonely now as it was in in the center where you're still trying to find a network at your level. Um, there definitely is. Uh, I guess holes as the as as you go along growing yourself because you get to a certain level and you're at a platform and then you're at the end of that platform and you can either stick with it at that level or progress and then but progression you lose the people along the way that don't align with your values uh, and then you will find new people that align to your new values so yeah, that will change as you go. And what you're referring to there, and I just want to come to you in a second, Amanda, what you're referring to there, Simon, I think is that as you as your business grows, and for me, I think this has been like basically every three and every zero that we've had in the business, so 300,000, a million, three million, you know, one million, three million, ten, and then hopefully a 10 million again, is where basically you get to a certain level and you basically have to rebuild your whole business from the ground up because all of your systems and processes break and the people that you have in the business maybe that are good at running a $1 million business don't have the skills to run a $3 million business or a $10 million business or whatever. And so you have to basically level up everything and re-engineer it from the start. So that's what you mean by plateau, right? When you have, you pass through that. So Amanda, how has this played out for you in terms of just your, I mean, do you still go out with your same friends and talk about the same things? And do you have to, do do you not, do you have people that you just can't talk about business with because they just don't get what you're, what the heck you're talking about when you're talking about cross per lead or whatever. I think, <laughs> yeah, we don't have those conversations. I think I, you know what, I learned, I learned very early on not to push what I do onto my friends. So I'm, I'm very much a person that if you want to speak to me about your body or your, your, your nutrition or your movement or your pain, then I'm open to that conversation, but I don't bring it up because it's, it's pushing your business onto your onto your friends and family is is usually not received well. So people know what I do, and if they don't, some do, some don't, some don't know what I do, and that's okay too. Um, I'm okay with that because the people that come to me do know what I do and they like what I do, so that's important. Um, but I don't think um, no, I don't think I um, I probably don't have as much of a social life as as I did, but I'm still I'm still okay. I'm still okay with that. I think as as you grow, I have um, acquired different um, friendships in, um, and I guess even in different different arenas. So, like you know, I've made some like friends in in run clubs and and at business seminars that we've been to. I've made some solid connections with people, and I I love hanging around with people that are way more intelligent and and know way more stuff than me because then I can just learn. Um, you know, I, I enjoy those conversations, um, you know, but, uh, like Simon said, we both have, we both have children and we both have fam- families and we're pretty, we're pretty busy, but yeah, I don't think a lot of those business conversations happen in friendship circles. Not, no, <laughs> not at all. Amanda, tell me about delegating and letting go. Uh, you, I think you've both kind of mentioned in the course of this conversation that, that growth as a leader, growth as a business owner involves letting go of the need to do it perfectly and the the notion that no one can do it as well as you can. 
and stepping back and allowing other people to fuck it up in their own special way. But maybe that's better than you trying to grasp and hold on to everything and being the bottleneck in the business, which is I've done. Um, yeah. So tell me about your, your thoughts on that and how, how, how's that? How have you experienced that? I think that initially, initially when you're a business owner, you, and, and, and it is true that, that you, you are very well invested into your, into your business as an owner and that no employee, um, you know, I've been a business owner previous to this business as well, and no employee ever invested as much into my business as what I did. And, um, that's part and parcel with owning a business, but I do, I do, um, prior to the, um, mentor that we have at the moment um prior to that um we did have a, another mentor um and he uh taught us a lot around you know working working smarter not harder and the ideas around um teaching others around you everything that you know in order to elevate them and to grow them and to actually share um, the knowledge that you have is much more beneficial to you and your business um, than holding information and holding all the hours. And, you know, there's only so many hours in a day that I can teach um, before I hit burnout. And there's only so many years that I can do that for before I hit burnout or I miss my kids' soccer games or I miss their training sessions. You know, there's only so much that I can take. Um, as a, as a human, I need to sleep and, and spend time with my family as well. Um, and, and there's a real benefit to sharing that information. And, you know, I always believe whether, you know, whether a, an instructor has a year's experience or 20 years experience, they've got more experience than me in some area. And, Time teaching doesn't necessarily make you a great instructor. I think the ability to um, acknowledge your strengths and weaknesses and know what you do best. And I have other instructors that are better at doing things with particular clients than what I am. And I appreciate them. And I, when those clients come in, I know who they need to see. Um, So I think it's a little bit of... um, self-awareness as well. I would agree with that. Uh, I'm interested to ask you, Simon, about balancing the, the, the trade-off between, I guess there's a balance between letting other people shine and sometimes just acknowledging that other people are in fact actually better than you at doing the thing, even though they don't do it the way that you would like it done. They actually do it in a better way. <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time, I think there's such a thing as abdicating responsibility. And I've done that in my business where I, I basically outsourced our marketing at one point without having enough oversight over it. And that wasn't the fault of the people to whom I outsourced it, but they didn't do a great job because they didn't know enough about our business or our customer or our offer or whatever. And so how do you manage, how do you find that balance point between letting go and going, okay, maybe this person's going to do it like 80% as good as me and that's good enough, you know, versus like, no, this person's really going to fuck this up because my care factor is 1,000 times higher than, than their care factor. My knowledge of the business is 1,000 times higher. So how do you find that balance point? I think uh, 
coming back to that first point around hiring the right people, right culture, right feel, um, they've said on paper, hey, I can do this, this, and this. Fantastic. That's That all looks great, but can you actually do it? And, uh, you know, one of the big key points how I've moved forward is you have to be a massive fan of delegation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you want to be able to give everything away. Otherwise, you can't grow uh, for everyone else. You know, you can't grow for the sake of the company. Otherwise, you're just plateau. So, delegating is is one thing and like i said before uh not being a micromanager people will stuff up they won't do stuff as good as you and there's heaps of people out there that are way better than you at those little jobs way better and i reckon probably most of our team is better at me in all of those aspects and that's totally cool that's what i want (laughs) so that's all i look for it's excellent (laughs) yeah yeah, you want you want people that are better than you. You want to be able to trust them that they can go off and do the job that they said they were going to do and they can do with your business. Yeah, that's been something that's really been uh, so, that has really been a, a game changer for me is realizing like deep in my soul that the people I work with are actually better than me at what they do. It's like if I stepped in and said, "No, let me do it." It's like I would actually do a worse job. You know, I can't do it as like if I took over running our Google ads or if I even some of the functions within the business that like I originally prided myself on. And this has been my experience is I let, you know, they let go of the things first that I hated, like doing the accounting or, you know, cleaning the studio or whatever, you know, it's like you hire someone to do those things you hate and you're not good at. But then the, the, then you start to let go of things that you're actually pretty good at, like doing the website or you know, whatever. And then you, then last you let go of the things that you thought like, this is my core strength. Right. And so like, um, delivering the, the training, you know, I now don't deliver our training in our certification program. And at, you know, I, I let go of that a couple of years ago, but I'm now at the point where I go in, I look at the trainers we've got delivering. I'm like, you guys are doing it better than me. Right. This course has improved since I stopped teaching, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And now I look at our, at our diploma program, and I'm still involved in it. I give the lectures, and, and I'm involved in the Slack, like I said before. But I don't. I deliver like 10% of the content in that course, and and the, you know, I don't do any of the tutorials or the workshops or the masterclasses or anything. And all of those things are delivered better than I could do it. You know, if I look at the things that are being done, I'm like, oh, that's amazing what you do. I look at our, our, our training team. Same when I look at the sales team. You know, the marketing, the, like the DevOps people, like you know, like the team is full of people who are smarter than me at the things that they do. And I think that's an absolute secret to growing a business is you have to hire people that are smarter than you at doing the thing that you hired them to do. And some of those trainers that are now better than me at delivering the search, I taught them how to do it. I was like, Hey, here's this cert that I wrote. Here's how you teach it. Here's the lesson plan. And then I'd come back a year later and it's like, God damn it. You're better than me now. You know, you're You've figured it out. So I think that I congratulate you on that. I think that's fantastic. I want to, I want to move uh, gears now and shift to uh, talk, just talk about the franchise a little bit, because that's something I think it's, it's very, an interesting concept. So why did you, you know, like you said that you went into franchising because the partnership thing wasn't viable and I'm with you there because I've had a partnership before that I now realize was not the right choice of people and we didn't have it set up properly and stuff. So I think it's very easy to go wrong with partners. There's lots more opportunities to get it wrong than there are to get it right. And 
But I think, you know, growing by franchising is a very specific strategy. It's like, well, why not just grow organically by building more company-owned studios, for example? Why why not just say, hey, we're not going to do a partnership arrangement. We're just going to grow it ourselves. We'll take private, we'll take like silent investors only or whatever. So why did you choose franchising and yeah, I guess that that's my choice. That's my point. That's my question. Why why franchising? Yeah. Uh, over over. If I was to do go the other way and open my own three four studios, um, you know, get a manager, staffing, and so on, your time is is thinned out. You have a manager in any of these studios, or the person that runs the the studio, their accountability is really when it comes down to a very little to them it's a job now they might be passionate about the job but when things come down to you know the raw what am i going to do in life maybe there's a better thing out here over there or you know is there something wrong with my family now there's a priority here over here i need to earn more money over here that all that passion goes out the door and now becomes a you know another thing but uh, with the franchise or the franchisee, they own the business. It's theirs. They have skin in the game, right? So, and you can't beat that. Yeah, yeah. If you've got skin in the game, you have like real depth, not just passion, but you've got depth and real accountability that what what's in your hand uh, will affect you if it goes down financially. It will affect you personally. All those things, everything that goes on with that business can affect you positively in a, in a large way or negatively. So big accountability thing is uh, was one of the main reasons. How am I going to make managers accountable if they don't have any skin in the game? And is what where to I, – I, I guess I want to ask – you know, what would you recommend to somebody who is, who maybe has one or a couple of studios and is considering franchising as one of, one of their possible future options? Yeah. Um, let's say, uh, think about how big you actually want to grow. Is it only one or two more studios? It wouldn't be worth it. If it's 10, 20, 50, 100, it's worth it because you can't do all of that yourself and you can't manage managers no matter how good you are um, at over four or five studios, definitely not. Uh, so that would be where I draw the line um, and I'd advise. <laughs> I would go in that franchise direction, um, but you still got to be willing to put large amounts of money in upfront and large amounts of time in upfront on the risk that it may or may not work still. So there's a lot of time and, and drive uh, that's involved in deciding on going forward with a franchise. It's not a not an easy decision, but um, if you're someone like like ourselves, where we're quite adaptable, we we don't need to know the whole situation as long as we're 80 percent, you know, know what's going to go on, and we're 100 percent confident, then um, that's that's a good sign to to move forward. So, and I imagine you'd want to have a profitable business as a platform so that you could absorb that loss if you if it didn't work out, right? Yeah, definitely. Like you still, you know, like you said, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent full. I wouldn't say that, but you you want to be at you know you want to be growing. You don't want to be plateauing at three quarters of a studio. 
uh, whatever size your studio is. And if that, if that is actually the model you want to repeat, uh, there's lots of things you need to think about. Is that is that actually what you want to repeat or what would you change? If that wasn't your studio and you walked into it, what things would you change? <laughs> and that really should be your model, not the one that's just was the convenient one to make at the time because that's what you could afford. Yeah, I think that is such a crucial point. And I, I, I'm not sure if you read the same book I read, but I think it was Jack Welsh or Leo Coker or someone who said basically they were sitting there at this you know, president of Chrysler or whatever company it was, and the company was going down the gurglow in the 1980s or you know, they are basically about to be kicked out and replaced with you know administrators. And they, he said to the vice president or whatever, like, oh, what do you think those guys will do once they come in and kick us out? And it's, and then it's like, oh, I think they'll do this. If I was them, I'd do this. And they're like, oh, well, why don't we just do that? You know, you know, <laughs> and and they did, and they saved the company. You know, so I think that's such a great perspective shifting question: is what would I do if I came in from outside this business? You know, what would I advise myself? Or if I hired a $5,000 an hour coach and they came in and told me just like the plain unvarnished truth about what I needed to do with this business. You know, what would that person advise me? And often you already know the answer. Yeah, definitely. And if you ask your instructors, you know, they'd generally be pretty truthful if you hit them up. Yeah. And, I'll tell you. and it's like, what would you, yeah, what would you want in this year? What would you love to see? Or what do you think would make it better? And you even know, better you ask a, your clients. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All of those scenarios, those those layers, that you'll get the right answer and you'll see those common common areas that are needed. Yeah. You're you, you guys now at three franchises, five total locations. So you are really a you're at square one of your snakes and ladders journey on the on the franchise ladder, right? So you've I mean, I don't know the ins and outs and I I'm not going to ask you about it, but I'm I'm guessing that the the money that you've invested in creating a franchise scenario, you probably had break even or thereabouts on what you've invested, right? So you must have bigger aspirations for this. So so what's what is the next goal? What is the next mountain that you're climbing? It's funny we look back at a newspaper article that that came out and um, Amanda and I were at the trampoline arena and they said, oh, new business that, you know, they've been around, these guys are going to – 60 studios in five years and I looked at the date on the newspaper article and it was March 2020, which is when COVID came out. And uh, so, yeah, but, uh, you know, we, we had a year to consolidate. We actually had a few more franchises, but we had to sort of consolidate our opening brand new right at the back, right just before COVID hit where the fitness businesses were closed in Sydney. So that, that uh, was a bit disappointing, but... Uh, we consolidated in the last uh, 12 months and worked on some very big plans and uh, systems and just got stronger and stronger. And uh, we've, we've just started marketing again and we're already going to be uh, looking at 60 studios on the east coast of Australia and and um, we've already looked at um, the first step is already succeeding as far as growing into the US, um, which will be going forward very soon. So um, this will be some massive growth in the next three or four years. Wow, that's very, very exciting. And I, I guess that you your role now really changes because your job now is to not only market the 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 end user, you know, 
but actually to find, you need to find franchisees and that's actually a sales process where you need to do marketing to find those people who are interested and then you need to sell them on the opportunity. Uh, so you, are, your business is transitioning from being a business where your, your business is selling Pilates and personal training. Now your business is selling franchises. Yeah, I'm not only uh, selling franchises, but I'm also selling at another layer territories now. Like we sold the, a, a state in the US and we sold a state in Australia. Like there's there's other levels above that where that's what I am now. It's, you know, I, I just look at it as selling a membership. You're selling a membership or you're selling a business or you're selling an area. It all comes down to relationships, culture. That's never going to change. So I think if we stick with those, those, those brackets initially, um, we'll, we'll have good people and good teams. And isn't it interesting that essentially this, the process and the skill of selling a $150 Pilates, you know, five pass or whatever is basically the same skill as selling a, you know, something with multiple zeros on the end as a territory or a franchise or, a, you know, whatever. it's basically the same skill. And so that's, it's where you come it comes back to what you said before about sales and marketing being just the foundational skills of of building a business. And if you can if you can learn those uh, and cut your teeth in, I think selling your Pilates uh, services that is. I mean, I think actually in in a lot of ways, selling fitness is actually harder than selling. Uh, now I've never sold a franchise, but I've sold financial opportunities, and I think it's much easier to sell something to someone when you can say, "Hey, if you spend a dollar, you'll make back five dollars." You know, right? That's much easier. That's a much easier sale than saying to someone, "Hey, if you spend this dollar, you can come and experience some pain and discomfort in my session." You know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, it definitely has its alignments, that's for sure. But um, um, I think they're just more layers when it comes to selling something with more zeros on the end. It's, it involves uh, more and more in-depth discussions and. Um, I guess a broader assessment um, before stepping forward. So yeah, and as you as you move out into the US, I imagine there are a whole bunch of additional uh, layers around. I mean, we've found this with like US employment law and taxation and currency exchange rates, and how do you how do you measure your revenue when you're taking multiple currencies, and how do you manage that conversion, and where do you pay tax, and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of additional complexity, I imagine, in building your business out there as well. Yeah, and again, it was just finding the right people, find the legal teams over there. Like I wasn't able to do legal stuff here. I'm not a lawyer, and I can't do it there. I still need another person. <laughs> so, um, it's to me, it's just another area. Like I don't really overthink, and I don't know. To me, yeah, it's just it's always going to be people, right? You get the right people, get the right teams. We all work well together. And we can all grow well together. Final question: Where do you stand on work-life balance? Pretty good, actually. Uh, I used to be a bit of a workaholic, but I found as my kids, my kids are teenagers now, and you know they will tell you what they think. That's for sure. Um, if they need you to take them somewhere or <laughs> down the shops or to the to the sporting ground or whatever it may be, and uh, you need to be really good at uh, making sure that you're aware of your time. So that time auditing I talked about. Uh, that uh, compartmentalization I talked about. This is family time. This is work time. What can I deal with right now? What can I not control? Control. 
all those little buckets you put things into, um, dapper delegating monstrous amounts of pretty much anything I can delegate, I'll delegate because you have to, if you want to grow for everyone, including your family and have your own family time, you need to delegate. You have to delegate and macro manage <laughs> over micromanage. So, um, that it's, it's not bad, but there's several, several areas to look at, but, uh, yeah, I find I'm relatively good at it most of the time these days. That's very encouraging to hear you say. And uh, I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing so candidly and uh, I'm you know, excited for the journey that you guys are already, you know, how far you've come, uh, which is admirable and a real outstanding achievement. Even if it all collapsed right now, which it's not going to, you've you know, done an amazing job um, to get this far that you're already in the the elite of the elite of of small businesses um, right around the world, not just in Australia. And uh, you know, this next step really is a is is the next level. You know, this is going to add more zeros to um, the whole thing. And it's it's interesting for me, and kind of like we said before, that well, after you after your bank balance has a few extra zeros in it, it's like it's it's fun and it's exciting, and I'd much rather have it than not. But ultimately, your day ends up playing out about the same regardless your kids still get cranky at you and whatever it's still the same uh, and so ultimately when you have these ambitions like you do to grow from six million to if you're going to 60 studios that must be like a 10x you know improvement in in growth in revenue at least um that you know it can't be motivated by money right because it's like you've already got when you when once the thing about money that i've found is once you've got enough more doesn't make any difference, you know. So so going from not having enough to having enough is a big difference. But then once you've got enough, having 10 times as much, just like there's, there's no discernible difference. Um, so, you know, you can't be motivated by money. So what is, you know, what is driving you to, to grow this bigger? Why not just sit back and cash out and take your, you know, take your bank balance and go and sit on a beach somewhere? Uh, there might be a work ethic thing. I'd just be <laughs> do my head in to do nothing. I think, but well, what, all right, but why? But why not? Why not just leave it as a great, fantastic five, you know, location businesses, you know, generating great money and and helping people and changing lives. I think it goes. It stems from why you started being a, a trainer or instructor to start with. You know, you you started that because you want to help people. Franchise is no different. You build businesses. You're helping business owners build their dreams. Their, their dream is to help other people in a in a wider platform than just one client in front of you or a group of clients in front of you in that one hour. You can, as a business owner, you can help hundreds. As a franchise owner of multiple places, you can help thousands. You know, territories, you can help tens of thousands. <laughs> it just multiplies. So it's that need for success to help people achieve their goals is what keeps me driven. Yeah. That's interesting. That's very, very similar for me. Like we're, you know, my wife and I, it's it's interesting actually. My wife and I have basically the same roles that Amanda and you have, but reverse. So you're basically in the business, it seems like you're the operator, like you make shit happen and you keep the, the business, you know, people doing what they need to be doing and the systems and processes, et cetera. And Amanda's kind of more the face of the business. And, and, and whereas for my wife and I, that's reversed. I'm kind of the face of the business and she actually does the work, you know, <laughs> that makes it, <laughs> makes it run. Um, uh, and we were talking, we we're talking recently and she said, okay, so we're going for $10 million this year. We want to, you know, expand out to the US, et cetera. 
what about next year? What's our goal after that? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, she's like, what about 50 million? I'm like, well, I don't know. 10 million kind of feels like enough to me. It's like, how much do we need? You know? Um, uh, and it was interesting to me to observe in myself that's like, well, more money just wasn't exciting to me. It just like, it was like, why should I bother? You know? And then she said, well, but what about all those people that desperately need our help, you know, and, and, and that we would fail, basically fail to help them by just going, okay, we're done. You know, that's enough. And I realized that, and that actually is, that conversation has really catalyzed a big rejuvenation in my passion for this whole thing. And now I want to grow to 50 million, a hundred million, not because I want the money. I don't give a shit about the money, but I've, I've realized that actually, like you said, my impact now is multiplied where I used to work one-on-one with clients and I could help one person with their sore back or whatever. Then I ran a studio and I had a team of instructors. I could help a thousand people with their sore back. And now I teach instructors so I can help 10,000 people with their with their sore backs. And now I'm think I'm looking around the industry. I'm saying all these instructors, the instructors aren't making the money they want to make because they don't, they don't have the business skills. They don't get taught that in their Pilates certification. I'm thinking, what if I could teach these instructors to see like five times the number of clients and charge twice as much and, and have much more viable businesses. They could employ more people. They could help more people. And that, that has really fired me up and really, you know, got me excited about growing our business, you know, beyond, you know, the next kind of horizon. And so I'm totally with you. I think the, the, it's the impact that you can have, you know, once you get beyond a certain point and you've got, you've got enough money, um, whatever that means to you. Uh, I think it's the impact that, that, and, and also the work ethic, like I would get bored as batshit just doing, if I retired, like what the, what would you do all day? You know? Yeah. We'll be one of those people that have a heart aside from going slow too fast. <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to add? Is there anything we've we've not touched on that you'd like to to share? And I I think we've covered the bulk of um, what we need to cover for today. It's um, yeah, I think so. As you listen to uh, podcasts from from anyone, you can only absorb so much in one go. <laughs> And the rest sort of skim over the top. So, and and wherever you are and whatever level you're at right now, um, there'll be a certain part of what we chatted about today, which um, is relevant to yourself. And then you can come back and maybe in three months' time, there's another part that's relevant that you can now be proactive with in your own business. So, um, no, I feel we've covered the the basics uh, of it for today. Um, I hope, hope it helps. Hope it helps a lot of people out there. And um, happy to happy to jump on if um, any advice is ever needed again. You know what? I think that my sense is that what people listening to this will get is more around mindset than specifics of how to, although there has been some great how to stuff. I find that when I listen to podcasts a lot these days, I like the people and books and whatever, the people that I follow, I've read all their stuff already, you know, and I know what they're going to say. I know what, you know, if, if I, if I was to ask them about pricing or marketing or whatever, I know what they would say, but I like to have their voice in my ears because it just keeps me in that mindset and keeps me surrounded by those influences. And I think there's a real value in just having that context and that being surrounded by that mindset. And and so I think uh, that even if you didn't have like any great pearls of wisdom to add, you know, I think just hearing your kind of laid back mentality and it's like the way you come, you know, you think about 
building a business and running a business and delegating, compartmentalizing and moving on and failing forward and all of those things. It's like you can you can't hear that stuff too many times. You know, I mean, you could hear it five times a day and it still wouldn't be too much, I think. No. And and the more you listen to podcasts, the more you're involved in any form of mentorship, going to events, like any of those things, the more you go to, you go to the first 10, you're sort of hearing new stuff most times. And by the time you've done like 50 or 60 of them, <laughs> it's as long as you can pick one gold nugget out of each event, happy days, you know, grab that, move on, go to the next one. So I think that's what it's about. It's not um, that, you know, every minute of every podcast is 100%, you know, in your next growth path, just one bit will be. No, and I think you know one another thing that people might take away from this is that uh, that I'm sure a lot of people will is that it's possible to make really freaking great money, you know, teaching Pilates. Like you don't have to work for twenty dollars an hour at the local studio if you don't want to. Yeah, that's right. Don't undervalue yourself. Be confident, and uh, people will pay what they see as value. So if you put forward value and put forward confidence, um, you they will return that value in. In dollars <laughs> and time, of course. So, yeah. What a great place to leave it. Thanks so much. Really appreciate everything you've uh, shared. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So Rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.